on this thrilling auditory expedition into the mesmerizing world of custom technology. So welcome to The Sound of Design. With Mark. And Dan. And uh, <laughs> we are very excited that you are with us today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we've got a very exciting show planned for you today. It is uh, going to be a little bit of a split uh, show. We've got some things we want to talk about when it comes to AV and commercial spaces. And we're not going to be getting too heavy into it. But a lot of folks that are clients of ours tend to own their own businesses. And so I think it's important that we touch on some of the crossover things that would be something that you would have to understand for your home is also going to be something that you would want to do for your business and vice versa. And so the principles are actually very similar. And so we just want to touch, I think, on uh, on some of those. And then uh, we also want to talk about some misconceptions. There's a lot of bad information out there and a lot of misconceptions when it comes to technology. Uh, and I think we should spend some time kind of going over a couple of those. I think that's going to be a lot of fun, to be quite honest. I agree. Yeah, I, I've, uh, I'm pretty excited about a lot of this stuff. I will say, just to touch on the business stuff, I'm pretty sure like to live in the state of Tennessee, you have to own your own business now. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's what it's like. Gig economy, yeah. man. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Uh, I think it is a thousand percent the way that things are going. There's nothing wrong with that. So, to uh, start with, what's the first thing that you would talk about in an office uh, for someone that, regardless of uh, what they do, that would apply to absolutely everyone? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, one of the first things that I ever learned about working in a commercial space, and this was, gosh. 15 years ago, 14, 15 years ago now, um, was that all spaces are not created equal when it comes to a commercial space. Specifically, drop tile ceiling. Mm. Um, and, a, and a lot of people listening to this, if you work in commercial, you know what I'm going for. Uh, it's called a plenum space. Basically, it's just a space that is empty, that air can travel through. Um, but there are specific codes involved in what can be located in that space. So, for instance, speaker wire, if you're doing distributed audio around an office, you need a plenum wire, which is going to have a specific burn rate, uh, meaning that if there was a fire, that it's going to take longer for that to burn so people can get to safety compared to what you might buy at a local store or on the internet. You know, it's not a clear coating. It's usually a thicker, not necessarily thicker gauge, but just a thicker uh, sleeve and casing around the wire itself, just in case, worst case scenario, that, that the, there's a fire or something, it's just going to take longer for that to burn so people can get out. Yep, absolutely. And I'm so glad you started there because this is uh, the disclaimer. You have to work with a designer or an integrator that is familiar with the local codes and the local ordinances and what needs to be done uh, in that specific uh, city, county, state. There's all sorts of things that need to be double checked. And that could be pulling permits, that could be getting inspections and things along those lines. And that is not something that you as the customer or the client needs to be worried about. You need to be focused on building that space and running your business and doing the things that you need to be focusing on 
And that's the whole reason why you're outsourcing to us. <laughs> so that way you don't have to deal with it. You can like make us deal with it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. And, and full disclaimer here, like because all those things are different for a business, you're going to insure your space. These things can cause insurance not to cover things if you don't follow the correct code. So it is very important that you follow those. And I mean, I've worked just in our area alone. I've traveled to Alabama. I've traveled to Kentucky and the codes are completely different for what our team could even do there just because we crossed the state line. They're doing the same work. We're allowed to do it in Tennessee. We might not be allowed to do it in Alabama unless we pull a certain license or permit. So definitely follow Dan's advice and get with uh, a professional that knows <laughs> what they're doing. Uh, so, and I think the, uh, all right, all the disclaimers and all those kinds of things uh, now out of the way, you found yourself a professional, you found yourself somebody who's going to work with you on a design and putting a plan together. Where would you then start all conversations uh, from a networking perspective? Because I feel like everybody and their mother's uncle is going to be on the network. Everybody's going to need Wi-Fi. Everybody's going to need some sort of an access. And it seems like uh, that just continues to become more and more and more and more a necessity. So how do you uh, design a business networking system as opposed to, say, a home or residential system? Sure. I go back to a project that I started you know, probably a year and a half ago, and it took, it was probably six to eight months ago before we finally finished it. But uh, it's designed similar to how you would, you would think a, depending on the size of the business, you would think a, we'll probably say small business, right? That you would think a residential network would run. However, there are typically additional security protocols that we need to take into account. Firewalls, things like that to protect the business. So the first thing I usually communicate with is, or communicate about is, depending on the size of the business, do they have an IT person and or department? Because that's critical. You know, there are, you know, certain networking components that are work with anything, there are certain ones that will only work specifically for what, you know, their business architecture or network architecture needs to be for whatever software they're using. So checking with IT first. Uh, and then the next step there is just, you know, making sure you get ample coverage around the space and install access points that can handle multiple broadcasts, you know, multiple network names or SSIDs is what they're referred to. Um, because like you said, everyone and their mother may is going to need that internet access. But if you've got a point of sale running, you don't want the point of sale running on the same network as Dan's, Dan's Facebook account, right? That's right. You know, you know, you don't, you don't want, you know, someone on their phone being able to possibly access that network traffic. So being able to separate that is super important. And whether you have an IT department you work with or not, uh, it just, that's going to dictate what components you're going to choose, right? Yeah, and and I'm glad that you kind of went that direction because that's immediately the thing that has come up over and over whenever we talk to uh, business owners. It's this thing needs to be separate entirely and that thing over there needs to be separate entirely. And when I say this and that, I'm referring to the networks. There should be a network for the business owner and for their employees. And there should be one that is separated out to your point for a point of sale system. Uh, so that way financial data and information is not being on the same network 
as the Facebook traffic or the checking email traffic or things like that because it's a potential security risk. Uh, one of the things that I love about some of our products, you can actually have a hidden Wi-Fi name. It's a practice I wish more people would do and maybe they do and you just don't see it because the truth is you don't see the Wi-Fi. You pull your phone out, you hit the Wi-Fi button and it scans for available networks, it won't see it. And so one of the best things you can do for, uh, from a security perspective is to eliminate any of those uh, potential uh, not nice folks from doing not nice things by creating a strong network infrastructure that provides the security necessary for whatever it is that you're doing. And all businesses in some way, shape or form have to handle uh, financials and that's really one of the biggest risks. Yeah. The other one is doctors with the advancement in technology. And we've done a ton of these for uh, specialists that are here in Nashville. Uh, they will look at uh, scans or this or that or whatever, and they'll be on a VPN and they'll be getting patient information through a dedicated line. So that way it's completely and totally secure. And so that's the other thing that you have to really kind of think about is what's called a virtual private network. And if you can get one of those set up, that ensures that you have another layer of protection and another layer of privacy built in. Uh, so that way those things that are confidential remain confidential. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, potential issues that you can have with a VPN <laughs> from a corporation or enterprise uh, level business. Uh, what are some, you know, fair, uh, fair things to maybe to, uh, to address? Sure. Going back to the products we were talking about earlier, we have, uh, you know, I have a client that works for, you know, a local business here and their VPN utilizes a substantial amount of bandwidth. I mean, a uh, hundred plus megabits per second. So being able to make sure that they maybe have a separated network specifically for them is important, kind of what you brought up earlier, right? Um, not only just just for them to utilize, but so that they can guarantee that we've split off enough of that network traffic that it's not going to be taken from some other part of the network. You know, it's not going to be taken from me looking at a YouTube video while I'm supposed to be working. So that's important. And, you know, just the security side that you mentioned too, like making sure that we don't have any of those intrusions that, you know, you wouldn't want. Honestly, we do that a lot. At least I recommend it a lot for some of my clients in residential spaces. So commercial spaces, I think it's super important. And I don't think enough people do it. Yep, I would agree with you. And I do know that you can experience some slowdowns in terms of your responsiveness, in terms of your mm -hmm. network speed, because you are adding things literally to block <laughs> yep. and to prevent and to scan. And so you will not have the same amount of speed or responsiveness that you would have um, on a network that does not have any of those security protocols engaged. That being said, that is the price you pay for making sure that things work the way that they're supposed to. So if you do a lot of Zoom calls and you're going to be doing a lot of video chat style, you know, three or four or five different people, 20 different people, 50 different people, you're going to be using up a lot of bandwidth in order to make those things happen. And VPNs are going to cause some slowdowns. doesn't matter how good your gear is. If that VPN has a limit on it, guess what? <laughs> 
<laughs> you ain't getting it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good though. Yeah. All right. So uh, once you solve the uh, the network portion of, of things, and you start thinking about restaurants or dentist office or public facing style businesses, uh, what's the next thing that you would look at to uh, make that sp- space very inviting and very comfortable uh, for the guest? Uh, I mean, I lean towards music. Uh, I don't know if that's kind of what you're thinking, but I, that's kind of my direction that I go. Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, you just want to make it more comfortable, like you said. You know, if you've ever walked into a hospital, you know, or just a waiting room at a, at a health facility and there's not any audio playing, you hear everything else going on in that space. Especially if you've ever been to like an ER or something along those lines. You don't necessarily want it to be that uncomfortable. You don't want that awkward silence. So having audio in a space is just going to make it more comfortable, more inviting. And, you know, you don't have to feel like you're, you, you can't make any noise in a space, right? So that's the direction I start first. Yeah, and I agree. I've seen a lot of folks, to, when it's a restaurant especially, the music creates an ambiance. It creates a vibe and a mood that enables us to really feel comfortable. That, to me, I think is first thing that uh, you want to maybe take a look at after making sure that you've got network connectivity, uh, making sure that the audio is good to go. And I think it's important to mention that because every space is different, you'll design the audio system differently. So I remember we did a, uh, a restaurant not too long ago, and it has a bunch of different locations within the restaurant. What I mean by that is there's a back room. There's an upstairs. There's a back room upstairs. There is a front patio. There's a back patio. There's a main dining room. There's a bar. There's a and as you start going throughout this, you know, larger uh, restaurant, you start realizing, oh no, there was actually a lot of different spaces that could be utilized for a lot of different purposes, all at the same space. And of course, you want music everywhere, so you have to kind of design out. In certain spaces, well, when we're outside, we need outdoor speakers. When we're inside, maybe we need in-ceiling speakers. When we are looking at a patio, for example, you may want to have speakers that are inside the garden beds that face like a landscape style, the inside patio area. And so each space really does need to be taken into account on that individual basis. And if you're going to be doing anything in terms of Uh, video, if you're going to have TVs or you're going to have a game or things along those lines, then the design becomes that much more complex because you're going to be trying to control what's happening in each area. So what would you do uh, if you were going to do a full-blown sports bar? Let's say you want to do 40 televisions or something along those lines, (laughs) Just, just all the things. And you want to try and integrate uh, the audio. What's the piece that you would need? And what are some of the considerations that uh, we should look at for, for that design? Sure, sure. This is a perfect, perfect scenario. Um, you know, a lot of folks, it, you, can spend, you can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on equipment to do, do the restaurants and, and whatnot. But uh, the big thing, if you're looking at television audio integration, uh, is a device called an audio matrix usually allows you to input audio from a source, say a cable box in your, in, in the instance, if you're watching 
sports. Um, and it gives you the ability to pipe that audio through your speaker system. And you can do that. You can do it, you know, a simple way of having, you know, just one box. And that's the, that box is the one that does audio. If you do a, an audio matrix that has several inputs, you can input all your boxes and, you know, get fancy with an automation system or control system to be able to choose, you know, kind of drag and drop. Hey, I'm, there's a big moment happening on this game. Let me listen to that. You don't have to change channels on a television to get to that game. You know, if you just have that single input device and that device is typically going to connect to amplification. The, the type of amplification and the amount of amplification is going to be dictated by the amount of speakers that you choose. Absolutely. Right. So you'd have like, you know, if you've got X number of speakers, you need X number of amps. Cool thing about restaurant audio and just really commercial audio in general is they don't hook up like your normal residential system where you have two speakers, speaker wire from each from an amp to each speaker. You just have to run one line per zone and they daisy chain between each of those speakers. So you can kind of create, you know, more zones of audio without all of the additional wire runs. Yeah. And I'm so glad you said that because I know a lot of folks will say, how much wire do we need to run? And that gets very expensive and the labor goes up because you have to do all the work. And you're referring, I think, to the 70 volt systems. And this is very, very, very mm -hmm. common. Uh, this is how you can get 30, 40, 50 speakers all to play the same thing. And you do need to have a speaker that is designed for 70 volt. You do need to have a, a distribution amp that's designed to power that. Uh, that being said, you run your plenum wire, and before you know it, you can have 20 speakers in an area covering a very large amount of space, and they all play back the same thing, and they are extremely efficient, so they sound good, and they sound clean, and they sound clear, and they're not crazy, crazy expensive. Of course, with all things, uh, when it comes to commercial, your space is going to dictate the size of uh, your project, and so... This is where, again, going back to it, work with your designer, uh, work with an integrator uh, that's going to be able to accomplish your specific goals for that particular space. And uh, I am really glad you mentioned the control system because I think that's the number one place where most people try and save money and it is to their own detriment. I agree. It, it kills me. Somebody will spend... Any number. It doesn't matter if it's $1. If you spend $1 and you don't use the thing that you spent the money on, it was a waste of money. And control systems, automation systems more specifically, the way you use the system is the most critical because if you are a restaurant owner, if you are a general manager, if you are a waiter or a waitress, and this goes for any business, if you're in a, a dentist's office, your dental assistants are not trained AV people. Nobody is very comfortable using technology if that's not what they do all day, every day. And so if you put in an automation system or what we call a control system that has an app on a phone or an iPad that says TV1, TV2, TV3, TV4, and speaker system one, speaker system two, speaker system three, speaker system four. You can click and press buttons to make things happen the way that you want them to happen. And it's all professionally installed and programmed so you don't have to worry about it not working. It just works. 
And that's the most critical uh, piece, I think, for uh, for any automation system or for any commercial space. Put the interface first and then scale your performance around it. Yep, and, and you're going to spend a decent amount of money. Uh, I mean, depending on how how far down the rabbit hole you want to go, you can spend you can spend a lot of money. But I, I agree. I mean, there's one restaurant here locally that they utilize an RTI system. It's completely customized to their space. And where one of their locations is, so there's a lot of people that come and go as far as working there. And this client doesn't need to teach every employee how to use the system again. All they have to do is say, hey, this is how you operate this these TVs. And honestly, they don't even have the televisions themselves integrated. The TVs just turn on and off. So all they have to do is turn the TVs on, or just leave them on in this case, and then they go to that wall or that app and say, hey, I want to, we're going to have this direct TV channel here and this audio, and that's all they got to do. So it keeps it easy. It keeps yeah. it simple. And, yep, yep. And one thing that I feel like we're skipping over, and I don't want to do this since we're talking about sports bars, commercial displays. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Commercial displays are inexpensive, similar price to inexpensive, you know, entry-level priced brand name televisions. You know, Samsung's the one that we probably do the most. Yep. Um, but I mean, a, a 75-inch Samsung uh, commercial display is like 1200 bucks. You know, it's not an outrageous price point, but... Keep in mind, like, if you're in a sports bar and you're going to be open from 10 a.m. until 2 a.m. every day, do you want to have to replace those TVs every so often? Like, no. Like, a commercial display is designed to last a lot longer. It's designed to run all the time. And typically, if one fails, the new one that you replace it with is the same design and style compared to... If you buy this year's Samsung TV and one of them fails and next year you go to replace it, it's going to look completely different. So now it doesn't look uniform. It doesn't look good, right? Yep, absolutely. And I'm so glad you called it out because the thing that drives me up the wall is when things are uh, all mismatched. And I'm sure that you've been to the sports bar where the projector isn't working maybe 100%. And so there's like a giant green tint. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> or you yep. see a blue line down the center of a television uh, or uh, and, and I'm an AV guy. Right. So I get it. Maybe I'm noticing things other people don't. And you're there to hang out and have a good time and enjoy the food and enjoy the drinks and and all that kind of stuff. But to me, it just makes the restaurant look like they don't care about their own uh, equipment and about their own restaurant. And so then that sends a message to me. As the customer, though, if you don't care about your TV, do you care about your food? Do you care right. about my experience actually, or do you just you're you're just happy that I, that I'm gonna spend some money? And so, am I coming back? Probably not. And and so I I don't mean to to make it sound like it's the end of the world, but at the same time, those are the things that are gonna separate a great experience from a okay experience. And, and and if it's just okay, then I don't know why I'm coming back. Yep. Yep. I mean, there's places, 
the there's a a place uh, when I lived in Florida that we would go to, and it was top notch everything when it came to displays and audio experience. And the food was just okay, but because of the experience that we got overall, we went back there a lot because of that. Not because oh we needed to have this great food that there's bar food. You know what I mean? You know, like look at look at a place like uh, like a Top Golf. You know, like not disparaging them, but you know, I don't go to Top Golf for the food. I go there for the overall experience. The food's the food's okay, but I get to pretend that I'm Tiger Woods with my friends, and you know, Have listen to time. music and listen to watch TV, and you know, they use a control system to run their space, so it makes everything a lot smoother and easier for their staff. We've kind of harped a lot on on restaurants because they're public facing, but there's a lot of businesses that run that are not necessarily public facing. Uh, and so there's a bunch of opportunities for people to really think about their spaces more from a productivity standpoint. And, and the first thing I think we should maybe bring up here is acoustics. We have not really talked a ton about them, but I will say, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, uh, uh -oh. but I actually think that cubicles are a good idea. Okay. <laughs> and I know what everybody says. They're soulless and wrong, and office space comes to mind where he takes the drill. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he opens up the, the window and he lets in the light, so to speak. Uh, but I'll be honest, I remember working in an, an office uh, when I lived in California, and I won't uh, bring up all, uh, all the details other than to say, that we had three salespeople in one room and we okay. were all on the phone at the same time making calls <laughs> <laughs> and you can see where this is going, right? Yep. Yep. We had very, very, very noisy conversations and it sounded like a call center and it's and people could hear it in the background. Well, that made us appear less professional to our uh, potential clients and customers and it was extremely, extremely difficult to work in. So while we may want to make an argument for a better designed cubicle, at the end of the day, the whole purpose of it was the acoustic control and controlling the sound in the space. And that's something that is extremely important, especially when people have very complex tasks that they need to work on. You have to be in a calming and peaceful space, not in a hyper loud, imposing space. And uh, acoustics, I think, are probably the number one way. Acoustic panels, uh, be it absorbers uh, or diffusers, um, really, I think, are the number one thing that uh, needs to get maybe talked about. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of my favorite things, I, we didn't actually do this install, but we ended up selling them some of these uh, panels. And I know we brought up uh, some of our acoustic partners before, but at the time, um, this was a uh, uh, an ice cream shop down in Alabama that they were this is they were they had two locations and the problem they're having if you've ever been to like a it's similar to like a well you've been to an ice cream shop you know you you walk up to the glass you look at the ice cream and you shout over the counter like hey this is the ice cream I want and how many you know eight scoops of this or whatever and fat kid at heart right <laughs> but right uh, but each one of their buildings it was just a you know a, a commercial you know, call it like a strip mall type space 
where there were three or four other restaurants or other places that accommodated in that same building or were accommodated in that building. So the ceilings were like really high, like warehouse high. And it was all metal. So whenever it was busy in there, which if you've ever been to an ice cream shop ever past 5 p.m. any day of the week, it's full of people because we love ice cream, right? You can't hear, the people couldn't hear what people were ordering two feet away from them. Right. And that was a problem. So they were going to put in a drop ceiling, but they didn't want to put, they, they put it in and it, it really didn't help because they just, they did a, some cheap panels and it, it was still pretty echoey. It really went too high and they didn't want to bring the ceiling down. So we got with this, uh, our, one of our acoustic uh, vendors and they actually sell these panels and now they're not like the ones we, we have in our, our location in one of our stores. They're actually, they look like woven, like mesh, mm -hmm. kind of metal, but they diffuse the sound once it passed through and it allowed some of that sound to break, to, to pass through. And it would keep it basically into that plenum space and, but also diffuse the sound to keep it from echoing. It was super cool. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought it up because every space is individual. Every space is unique and every space is going to have its own challenges and you have to work with your designer, you have to work with your integrator, and you. these are the kinds of things that unfortunately don't get talked about in the planning stage. And I understand if you are in the dog food business, just to you know, pick on nobody for no reason, you're not thinking about audio, right? You're thinking about the design, you're thinking about the look and the feel of the place, and so the practical part of can I hear my customer, <laughs> you don't think it's going to be a problem. And so what happens is you budget, you know, for this space and then it comes time and now you're in it and you're going, oh, now we have this big problem we don't know how to solve. And somebody comes to you with a bid for acoustics and you say, uh, that's a lot more than I may have anticipated. It's like, well, this isn't really that expensive when you if you were to really think about it in terms of your original budget I, I i can't imagine that you would look at starting a any retail location or any business and look at something for four or five or six thousand dollars as a major cost but it becomes that if you've already budgeted those dollars somewhere else right right <laughs> right <laughs> so like let's just plan appropriately let's let's think about uh, some of these things before you uh, commit uh, all of uh, all of that investment. And, and now you have to try and make it work instead of do it right. Agreed. Okay, well, there is uh, one other thing that uh, can be really, really cool when you go to a public space and that is the LED wall. I'm sure you have seen at stadiums. <laughs> I see them on TikTok all the time now. Yep, actually, they, <laughs> uh, they've been making their way around. What makes an LED wall or modular panel design different from, say, a projector or regular televisions? Maybe uh, walk us through a little bit of that. Sure. Recently, one of our colleagues... Dan, myself, and a couple of us all went down to a place in Nashville, and we had lunch together, 
And then we went and had Jenny's ice cream, which if you've never been in Nashville, it's a, it's a staple here. It's great. It's awesome. You need to highly, go. Highly recommend. Um, but across the street from the Jenny's ice cream was a, uh, a, a barbecue joint. Uh, now, Nashville is, I, I know that they're, you don't think Nashville and barbecue and, you know, but honestly, some of the best barbecue I've ever had is here. And I've had barbecue from Kansas City and from other places, and Nashville's probably my favorite. Anyway, that's another argument. That is to say, um, that them's be fighting words. <laughs> yep, yep. So, um, but we look across the street, and we're like, oh, this place has two, like, probably, I would guess, 150-inch LED panels. And you're, you know, to get to it, LED panel walls are essentially modular boxes depending on the size of screen it's going to be relative i want to say the ones we do from from uh samsung are like like uh eight by eight or or ten by ten or something along those lines it's all dependent on the aspect ratio and they make a ton of different options but essentially you choose hey this is the size screen that i want to display and it's several small little panels that attach together to create a large image there's no edges, so you don't see between them. They they sync right up together, and you get this clean, bright image. And that's the biggest thing. You know, I'm not going to harp on projection. We love projection here, but if you're outside, you can't have. You're not going to see this projector. You know, if you're projecting from a, a projector onto the screen, you need something that's going to be bright and vibrant, and it's going to hold up to the elements. And that's what these are designed to do. Yep. And I'm glad you said that. And it doesn't mean you can't do projectors, uh, maybe a rear projector or something along those yeah, lines yeah. in a covered space or something like that. But most televisions have a hard time dealing with the sun and projectors do have that as a limitation uh, because projector screens are fundamentally mirrors. So when that sun hits it, it doesn't matter. Nope. <laughs> You're it gonna doesn't see... know that it's the projector versus the sun. It just doesn't. It, 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 and that's okay. That, that's not what it was designed for. Uh, I think they're absolutely fantastic. And I think we're seeing a lot more folks realizing that the AV experience and the technology experience is becoming more and more of a necessity. And I think, quite honestly, it's a generational thing. If you look at the boomers generation, and I'm not trying to say it as a negative, they didn't grow up with technology. And nope. so it's not a priority for them. But as soon as you start looking at the next generations, be it Generation X or Millennials or Gen Z, well, everybody grew up now with technology. And so the expectations are completely different. And it's not a knock on the older generation. It's just to say, well, they didn't know and because the, yep. they didn't have it. And and they still enjoy it. It doesn't it, it's not a problem, but they don't look at that as maybe the priority, whereas with the younger generations, that is. And so if you're looking at setting up a business that's going to run the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, the technology has to work or the impatience level of your potential customer is going to go through the roof. And it, and I hate to say it that way, but there are some places I don't go back to because I am too impatient. I've become so accustomed. <laughs> I hate and and I'm not I'm not saying it as a as a point of pride, I'm saying it as a, a point of that's where we are as a society. Mm -hmm. We have to be realistic about where we are and what our expectations are. 
And it's not that I think that I'm so high and mighty. It's just that if I have my option between someone who does it and someone who doesn't, I'm going where I'm accommodated. It's really actually that simple. Yep. This place in particular is on the west. It's on the west side of town. And it's kind of like uh, it's interesting because it's kind of in between a like two roads that that kind of meet. It's at a pretty sharp angle, and there's this huge like kind of hangout space where they've got outdoor games, cornhole things like that that you can play. But it's designed to for people to show up on a game day and be able to go and watch their favorite sports team. You know, the, and if you go there and you can't see the picture or you it's not working or you know you didn't use the a commercial display or whatever it is. You know, that can hurt you, and, and why, like, why would I go there? Why wouldn't I just stay home and watch it, right? I could make barbecue on my smoker. I could watch the game on my TV, right? It's all that experience that Dan and I keep going back to. Think about the technology experience that your customers or your employees are going to have to deal with and work with your designer or integrator to make sure that some of the pain points can be avoided. Have those conversations early in your planning process before you start building, before you start committing those dollars. Uh, It's a good idea to come in and have a conversation. My favorite piece of advice was from a tax guy who said, come talk to me in October. Don't wait (laughs) until uh, the first week of April to uh, start a project. You know, let's have that conversation in, you know, September or October when we've got time, we can really think about, and then you can really start to implement a good strategy. And I think it's the same holds true uh, for us um, and for the AV industry and technology industries in general. You really want to have those conversations early. I agree. So let's say we do a segment. (laughs) Ooh, a segment. We don't do enough segments. Welcome to Tech Mythbusters. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I you know, I, have, I was going to say I have to leave that in now. <laughs> yep, I don't care. You can leave it in. I'm down. All right. So uh, where we go through uh, some of the uh, biggest misconceptions and the biggest myths that are in our industry. And so, Mark, uh, what is one of your tech myths that you would like to bust? Ooh, uh, I'm gonna start with one of my favorites, and that is advertised wattage on receivers, specifically more entry-level receivers than anything. But it, it most receivers are guilty of it, let's be honest. Yep. So uh, I just happen to have a brand X receiver here in front of me that I'm looking up that I wanted to be prepared about this with. And this receiver says it's 725 Watts, a 5.2 channel Hmm. uh, at 145 Watts a channel. Okay. Now, now to put that in perspective, um, that seems kind of high. I'm not going (laughs) to, uh, what's the price point on that? particular receiver it is on sale for 280 dollars normally 350 dollars at retail cost wow so for 350 dollars i can get 725 watts if you can't tell by the laughing that is the that's kind of silly that's it is that's like saying that you can get uh for uh a car let's just do a quick analogy 
I can get a V10 engine in a $3,000 car at retail. <laughs> that's that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yes, yes. So <laughs> our point here is that it's not something that you can... I'm not going to say you shouldn't trust it. You just need to do a little bit of due diligence and have a conversation with somebody when you're looking at a receiver. So to kind of be on the other side of the that that coin a true amplifier that's going to run we'll call it 150 watts true 150 watts of power is going to run you thousands of dollars yep true wattage thousands of dollars like it, it it's just there's nothing that exists that is true 145 watts or 150 watts a channel that is not going to cost you thousands, close to tens of thousands of dollars in this case, depending on the quality that of product you're looking at, like the Macintoshes of the world, right? Right. So, but you've got people that come in all the time. They would come in to our store and be like, well, this, this brand X receiver says it's 145 watts a channel. Why would I buy that over this Marantz that says it's 125 watts a channel? A little bit closer to its actual wattage. Uh, why wouldn't I do that? Well, turn the receiver around if you're at a store. This particular receiver that can do 725 watts has a 230 watt power supply built into it. <laughs> hey, hey, wait a second. <laughs> you're telling me that a unit with a 230 watt power supply can also make 725 watts of power? That doesn't seem to make sense, Mark. Those numbers should be the same, not different. Yep. Now, how did they get away with this, Dan? So, <laughs> all right. If uh, anyone has ever heard a uh, curse word be bleeped out on anything ever, you'll hear a beeping noise. And that is a generated tone a uh, 1000 hertz it's just okay. a note okay and this tone is played by the manufacturer that one frequency not more and not less not a whole song not an average or a root bean squared number but just that one note and what they do is they plug a speaker into one channel and then they turn the receiver all the way up and you'll see in the mm. fine print they'll say 145 watts at a one kilohertz tone one channel driven and that is the maximum amount of power that they were able to generate out of that particular unit and then they take that number and they multiply it times however many channels are in the particular receiver so if it made 140 at one, who's to say it can't make that at all five? We just don't need to, you know, tell the whole story there. So. Yep, yep. And also, it gets better because they could utilize a 6-ohm speaker, Yep. which is going to make that wattage number appear to be even better than it is on a what most of us have are 8-ohm speakers unless you you know, have very specific speakers. Most of them are eight ohm. So I could almost guarantee you this is, if I were to look at the box, it doesn't say it here on this website I'm looking at, but it's 
is 145 watts. I'm sure it's probably 145 watts at six ohms. Yeah, because there's know, there it'd be almost impossible to get that number out of an eight ohm. And when we say ohm, just to make this extremely clear, we're talking about the resistance of the speaker. So just think about uh, the amount of weight you would have to push um, or said another way, how heavy the box is. If you think of a speaker driver, the cone itself has got to move in and out. And as a result of this movement, there's a measurement of resistance. And that includes all the electrical components. So that could be the crossover. That could be what wire do they use? That could be the driver itself and what size of magnet it is and what's the effect of the cabinet. And all of those things are taken into consideration when you're figuring out what the resistance is going to be. So to your point, if I have a very efficient speaker that doesn't have a lot of resistance, it can appear like we have more power because it's a lighter uh, driver that we're trying to push. Makes sense. Makes sense. And it is six ohms. That's what it is. I found yeah. it. Okay. That, that is. <laughs> so realistically, and, and this is just to kind of get, kind of wrap this one up. Like if you truly want to know roughly what power you're going to get out of, out of a receiver, you can turn that receiver around. You can take 230 and you can divide it by however many channels you're going to utilize or that it utilizes. So this is a five channel receiver at an eight ohm speaker. You're going to max get 46 watts a channel with all channels driven when and that's when probably go ahead when you turn it all the way up <laughs> when you turn it all the way on up right so you're probably not getting that much power out of it and that, that's okay like we're not here to say oh these are garbage it's just no kind of no before you go right and, and a lot of professionals do know this stuff um but you can't just go off of off of you know what that box says because you know, one brand versus another brand, they're going to put every spec in the world that's going to make that thing look as good as possible. Um, but if you just spend a little bit more money, you can get a much better quality product. Uh, I'm not going to mention brand X name, brand X's name, but a comparable price brand Y receiver uh, had double the power supply in it. Yep. And I was going to say that's the, one of the things that I've had a, a big habit of looking for when I make a recommendation, if I have the same $500 to spend or $700 to spend on a receiver and I look at the back of one and I get it, they are designing that unit to work at a particular uh, wattage and power rating, but you're at 260 watts and I have another opportunity to look at a receiver with say 430 watts or 500 watts or something like that. And we're in the same kind of a price point i think depending on the design it makes a lot of sense to mm -hmm. go with a higher wattage receiver as you start looking at what speakers we're going to pair with it and uh what's going to be the use and what size of room and all that kind of stuff and i go back to cars just because that's the most common thing that people know about uh when it comes to power it doesn't mean that an inline four with a turbo is not a fast car you can have very fast cars that have an inline four engine, but there's something to be said for having a V8. When you want the power, it's, it is what it is. Right. All right. Yeah. Brand X or sorry, brand Y uh, is 310 Watts and a similar price point. So it's not, it's dramatic. not a huge amount of a dramatic amount, but you know, you're talking what, uh, 
10 watts more per channel. Uh, maybe 15. Because it's five channels, so I'm not mathing off the top of my head really quick, but uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 watts more per channel Which at a means, similar price point. And, and you've increased now the headroom. So let's say that you don't even want to turn it all the way up. I just want to let it rock at the volume level that is comfortable for me and for my family. And so it sounds cleaner because it doesn't have to work as hard. So let's go into the other part of this misconception, which is wattage and speaker size <laughs> compared to the size of your room. How many times have uh, we seen something like this? Uh, look at these giant speakers on the Tiki Takis. And yep. on the uh, <laughs> uh, Insta Reels. Uh, Grammy Grams. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, you'll see these, uh, if you follow anybody with uh, any kind of technology, you'll see these massive, massive rooms. You'll see giant speakers. And one of the things that's so funny about that is people immediately look at that and say, oh, I've seen big speakers at a concert. I've seen big speakers at a show. I've seen big speakers uh, for a PA system or something like that at my school. I know what that's going to be all about. That's the guy who just wants to listen to it really, really, really loud. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. What's really going on there, Mark? Yeah, I mean, well, large, you know, you're going to get, you know, you walk over to a floor saying to people, well, I don't, it's not a big room. Like, that's the first thing that people would say. And it's like, well, just let me take a step back for a second. Because, yes, this is a big speaker. Uh, if I power it properly, can it push more, move more air? Sure. But I sell this same speaker in the wall, right? I yep. sell, you know, and also if I'm not pushing the amount of power out of it, I may not get as, it, you're right, there, there's a lot of variables there. But... The big thing with a larger speaker in a smaller space is I get more detail and I don't have to turn it up as loud to get that detail because I have more drivers that are able to separate those frequencies and give me the quality of sound that I'm looking for. So that's where I start. I mean, I'm sitting in my office and I have a pair of floor standing speakers over here right now next to me. Normally they're bookshelves. My bookshelves are here. I just brought my floor standing ones in here for fun. But I don't have to turn the volume past like 40% to get a full rich sound because it's a small space. Now, a larger space, yeah, I would need more wattage. I'd need more volume. But the misconception here is that big speakers are for big spaces. Small speakers are for, for small spaces. Speakers are for any space. It just comes down to the quality of sound you're looking for and the output that you're looking for. Yep, and I would uh, maybe take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the idea of headroom. So I remember mm -hmm. being in school and they had these conversations about different types of bit depth. And most people are gonna have their ears and eyes just roll to the, to the back of their head and it just glazes <laughs> over and they're like, well, what are you talking about? Well, the short version is that we care about this thing called headroom. How hard does something have to, to work? And so I'll give it a, a, an analogy. Let's say that we have a log and we have three guys that have to move this log. If I've got a skinny little guy who's trying to move this log, he's gonna have to work really hard. And so his knees are gonna shake 
and his arms are going to struggle and he's going to have to work as hard as he possibly can uh, in order to move that log. If I get a medium-sized guy, he's going to be able to drag that thing a lot easier. And so his experience is going to be a lot smoother. Maybe his knees don't shake as much. Maybe he's got a little grunt. Maybe he's introduced a little bit of distortion, right? <laughs> then I take a look at this huge, absolutely massive guy who's got, you know, tree trunks for legs and uh, tree limbs for arms. And he picks up that log like it's a twig. And he just throws it over his shoulder and calmly walks uh, that log wherever it's supposed to go. There's no distortion there. There's absolutely no wiggle. There's absolutely nothing funky happening because he has the ability because of the amount of power and the size that he has. Now, it doesn't matter that it was a four-foot log. The question is, what type of experience did we want? How far did we have to move it, right? And this is that idea of headroom. All gear works on the same principle. You push it to its limits, it's going to go wonky. It's going to go weird. And that's not a fault of the gear. It's because we're pushing it too hard, right? And so we need the headroom. We need that space to say, I don't want to push this thing to 100%. I want to push it to 30% or 40%. And it should sound clean and clear there. And then you get the second benefit of this, which is that gear is going to last a lot longer because we're not pushing it as hard. Makes sense. All right. Well, you've been listening to The Sound of Design. With Mark. And Dan. Uh, please like, comment, and subscribe. Uh, share with your friends. And uh, we will see you on the next episode. See ya. See ya.